Hello, welcome back, Shepherd the Sheep. Today we are talking about textual criticism, and specifically the passage in John 8 and the adulterous woman and whether or not it is really in the text. Not much. Fun day. Yeah. Critical issues are fun for you. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. This you're, stuff used to be fun. You're truly a nerd then. No, it's not. It's not like it was. <laughs> Back in the day, it was fun. Now it's not so much. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Well, we have to, I guess, explain to people why this is even going to be in a podcast. Yeah, so because, you know, we're um, preaching through the book of John, and I think if we are in Mark, we'd have to deal with this too. That's true. Yep, so here we are in the book of John, and uh, rolling along and got to 752, and next up in a lot of English Bibles is 753 through 811, which is the woman the adulterous woman and so um you know most of us are also concerned with preach the word Uh, don't skip over the text don't skimp over the text preach the text and move on and so that's what we're doing preaching along and we are going to go right in line with what we think the text says which means when we read john we get to 7.52 and keep right on rolling in 8.12, which then, of course, somebody will come along and go, hey, wait a minute, you skipped a paragraph. Not only that, you skipped uh, one of the most compelling stories, I think. Yeah, I know. That's that's the fun part. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm actually enamored a little bit with different some of the different paragraphs in the Bible that are... Um, commonly used at a foundational level. Mm -hmm. And sometimes this is one for why you can't say somebody's sinning. Mm -hmm. Right. This is that like, well, the adulterous woman, he was without sin. Like, you know, like you can't tell somebody they're sinning unless you're like sin free. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, so then none of us can Right. That, that this is the text that's that where Jesus says, you know, he who has no sin cast the first stone. Yeah. Because he they were trying to uh, according to the story, trap him again yeah. and see what he'd do. Yeah. So. so but if we're gonna miss it, if we're gonna skip over it, I think we need to explain why we're gonna skip over it. That's fair. Yeah. Um and so in So you're you're sure you're skip, skipping over this then? You're not going to Yeah, before I even opened the book of John, I knew I wasn't Okay gonna teach this text. Okay, fair enough. In this location. Gotcha. Yeah, so a friend of mine thinks I should still teach it at some point. 
uh, one of my old profs thinks mm-hmm. I should still teach it, um, but maybe not here. Uh, and I think when he taught through John, I think he taught it after chapter eight, but before chapter nine. I don't think he did it within in the sequence. In the sequence, right, right, yeah, yeah. And from what we can tell, it definitely doesn't seem to fit the sequence. When you say secret, you're talking about the the flow of yeah. the author's argument. Yeah. Not necessarily chronology cuz it might fit the chronology, right? Yeah, it might have been around this time. Uh it's just hard to think this was in the temple during the feast of booths. Oh, that's that's okay, I see. Yeah. So that that's kind of the issue. Um and to be fair, if you if you read the text and you you in your head, you just go from 752 down to eight twelve, it does make sense. Mm-hmm. So beginning in verse um, 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? Remember they had asked the officers to bring Jesus to him. The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But the crowd, this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing. Does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light, the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to flesh. I am not judging anyone. Um, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, and I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Mm. So this text, right, if, you, if you're if you reading along, like this text makes perfect sense in, compared to John 7. Um, one, Jesus is in the temple when he's teaching, and so... Um, he, you know, has come down. So if you follow the thinking in chapter 7, uh, originally he he wasn't going to Jerusalem. Um, he was walking in Galilee because he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And the feast of the Jews, the feast of the booths was near. So his brothers come to him and they're like, hey, you, you got to go down and you got to like really show yourself. Um, but Jesus is like, no, that's that's not what my time is. Um, so he stays in Galilee. The brothers go to the feast. Then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? Now they're seeking him. That's tied back into verse 1 of chapter 7. They're seeking to kill him. Um, 
So the Jews were seeking to kill him, or were seeking him at the feast, and were saying, where is he? And there was much of grumbling among the crowds concerning him, and some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying no. On the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Uh, but it was now in the midst of the feast when Jesus went up in the temple and began to teach. So in verse 14, we get this sense that, that he's in the temple teaching. right? And so in 8.12... Again, when Jesus tells him he's the light of the world and the Pharisees engage him, again, he's in the temple. So he's already in there. So he's already in there. So the context of 7 is the same context as 8.12. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so like every time I mention 8.12, I'm kind of mentioning, I'm, I'm talking about this prayer, this paragraph from 8.12 to 8.20. Um, second of all, he says, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone in 8.15. Well, and down in 724, he tells them, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Mm-hmm. So he tells the crowd this because the crowds, you know, trying to like, like they're marveling at his deeds, but they're like, well, the prophet can't come from, from Galilee, can he? Like search, search the scriptures. Nowhere like the prophet comes from Bethlehem or uh, Nazareth. And so, you know, then you come over here to like, you know, back in day 12, and or eight fifteen, you judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. Well, that that's the exact same theme as what we find in seven, specifically seven twenty four. And so you also find the Pharisees are denying him. Uh, here, the Pharisees again continue tonight to deny him. Uh, verse twenty: No one seized him. Again, this goes with 745, where they're asking the officers, why did you not seize him? So 7.53 through 8.11 seems really weird. Mm -hmm. Because 8.1, but Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again into the temple. Now, again, that, that could be possible. Right, it, it could be possible that this is the same experience. Mm-hmm. the The problem is that it still seems to kind of be like this jettisoned. Like it makes sense why somebody would put it here if it wasn't really here, but it was a true story. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it does kind of fit outside a little bit of the context. Right. Okay. So there's a couple things going on here. Um, if you have an English Bible and you look, most English Bibles in 753, unless you're using the New King James and the King James, starting in 753, there will be a bracket. Everyone went to his home. And then at the end of 811, there will be a bracket. What your English Bible is telling you is that they don't think that's in the text. So the English translators are marking this saying, hey, to the best of our ability... We don't think that's in the text. Now, you can find this in other places. Uh, if you go to Mark 16.9, uh, 16.8 seems to be the last verse of Mark. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone as they were afraid. And then in 9... Right, you start to get in and after he'd risen early on in the first days of the week, his first appearance of Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. 
you know, so here you get that and you get the, the snake biting and, and, you know, you get, you get the things that like, it's always, again, it's always funny how people reference these parts in Mark and you're like, that's probably not even in the text. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, um, there's, yeah, yeah there's all well, to be fair. They're probably using the KJV version though. Yeah, I don't think there's brackets around those. Yeah, so verse 17, these signs will accompany many who have believed in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay on their hands on the sick and they'll recover. So it's almost like like when you when you read that in Mark, like it does have some kind of precursor to Acts. Like you remember when mm-hmm. Paul gets bit by the snake but doesn't die Mm -hmm. so but the question is is that in the original text and so what we have to understand is you know one do i think so just just up front do i think the story in 8 1 through 11 is true i'm gonna go 75 percent yes Mm-hmm. Like I think there's some kind of oral history behind this that led them to say this has to be in the text somewhere. Somebody trying to preserve this. Mm-hmm. Okay. But when what we don't realize is when we read our Bibles, what we don't realize is the amount of information that exists or the amount of foundations that the English Bible is built upon. So the English Bible is a, is a translation of three different languages um, not just English, any translation. It, they translate Hebrew, Aramaic, and um, Greek. Mm-hmm. So those are your three translations. And so the New Testament is primarily written in Greek, where we then translate it from Greek to English or Greek to whatever language we're using. And in that process, you use manuscripts. Um, however, it's not like, you know, for 20 it's not like for 2000 years Simon and Schuster or Zondervan has been publishing bibles right so what you have also is the history of um copying and we don't always have a copier not until the Gutenberg press do we have a copier and that i believe 1500s right mm, i think so yes so uh, because that also helps with the reformation uh, because now you can, you can start to copy faster. And so books can get out faster. Publications get out faster. It becomes more important for people to read. So anyway, all that to say that it's not like, you know, if in our mind you're like, Oh, we've always had the Bible. Well, yeah, but how have we always had the Bible? And even in the old Testament guys would sit there and they would write out copies of the Bible and then they would sell those copies or distribute those copies. And it's the same thing with the new Testament. Excuse me. So you have all these different like um, manuscripts that exist from, you know, as early as 60 AD. And so what, what you have to do is first you have to figure out what is the Greek text. Then you have to figure out what does the Greek text say? And this is where textual criticism comes into play. Yeah, you're answering what was the original text um, yes. first. That's the first question. Yep. What, what is the original text? Yes. Yes. Now, when you're trying to figure out what is the original text, you're not trying to figure out what does the text mean. 
Correct. Okay. And that, that's an important distinction um, because, you know, what, what potentially happens here is that somebody comes along and says, oh, you're denying the word of God. And, and I hear, I mean, we, gosh, I hear that all the time. Oh, you don't believe this? You're denying the word of God. And it's like, okay, before, before we get into like, you know, that what you have to realize is the discussion here is not, we are trying to figure out what does the text say? What was in the inspired text? Yeah. And this is very, very important because we're called to preach the word. Yes. And, um, in order to, 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 to stand up and, and say, thus says, saith the Lord, um, we have to confidently, confidently be able to do that, knowing that what we have is God's word in front of us. Yes. So it's hard to do that, um, knowing that this text has issues. Yes. Yeah, critical issues, yes. Yeah. And so the, the second thing I would say is um, when they talk about textual criticism and they look at all the manuscripts, there are over 200,000 discrepancies between all the manuscripts. Right. Okay. Now, on the one hand, that sounds like a lot of errors. Okay. But but what you have to realize is that one sentence can have six discrepancies and a spelling can be a discrepancy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I, if, I, if I read a sentence on Sunday morning and your three-year-old who's learning how to write wrote that sentence, your seven-year-old a 10-year-old, a 14-year-old, an 18-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 40-year-old, and a 50-year-old all regurgitated that sentence onto paper. And then we took those 10 sentences and put them together on, onto a table and looked at them. There probably is going to be 30 discrepancies. Right. Okay. But at the end of the day, too, you could probably look at each one of those and, and realize what was said. Okay, so when they say there's discrepancies, um, no theological issue is is in jeopardy here, mm-hmm. because in the Greek word order, word order is not as important as it is in English. They can speak like Yoda for one sentence, and then roll right into Shakespeare, and then roll right into kind of the modern, you know, um, eighth grade newspaper. Mm-hmm. Mindset. Okay. Standard reading. Standard reading. Okay. So, and in the Greek mind, that doesn't matter. But if you're trans, if you're translate, if you're copying this onto paper and that, you know, again, this, this stuff is gets tedious. Um, well, which is true, Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ? Well, in the Greek, they're both true. They both say the same thing. Um, in the English, it's just a question of which one did you put first? And Christ is his title, not his last name. And so Jesus <laughs> is his name. Uh, Christ is title, but it can be Jesus. The Christ is usually how the Greek says it. Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah or the Messiah, Jesus. Um, it says the same thing, but that's a discrepancy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I don't remember where I was trying to go with that. Oh yeah. So all that to say that the question then comes down to how do you figure out what was in the original text? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and here's where, you have these two major schools. Um, one school says, well, you look at all the manuscripts we have available. And when I was going through this, there were like 5,500 manuscripts available. 
if I'm not mistaken, in the last 10 years, they found another 1,000. If I'm not mistaken, they are up to 6,500-plus manuscripts of the New Testament. Oh, wow. Now, somebody can fact-check me on that. Someone um, is at the at this very moment. Yes, probably. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, how many Greek New Testament manuscripts are there? Okay, so my Google search said 5,800. But if I'm not mistaken, that's actually higher um, than what Wikipedia is saying. And the good news is, um, if you don't like the 5,800 number in Wikipedia, you can go in and change it. <laughs> so it's obviously very reliable because anyone can change the numbers there. So all that to say, um, you have 5,800 manuscripts to look at. Now, there are some people that say, hey, look, let's just, we're going to use 5,800 because Wikipedia, uh, everyone likes a Wikipedia. Uh, so, um, let's say there's, there's two thoughts here, right? Um, let's say somebody comes along and says there are 2,901 manuscripts that say the verse this way. And there are 2,899 that have a different so one school of thought is, well, that's 2,901. That's the majority. The majority rules. That's what God preserved. It's, it's, it's the way the 2,901 preserved it. That, that's one school of thought, and that's called majority text. And so the KJV and the NKJV are majority text texts because they come along and say whatever the majority says. Now, that, by the way, there's a lot more to this argument, um, mm-hmm. but it's hard to take. 10,000 pages of reading. This is the the layman's version? It's a layman's version. Yeah. This is like, hey, we're going to talk about this in 45 minutes. Yep. Um, And if you're really intrigued by this, uh, one, welcome to Nerddom. Mm -hmm. And two, uh, yeah, we can point you to some other books. Uh, And if you can, if if those excite you, you may have a, you too may have a future (laughs) textual criticism. (laughs) Uh, The other one says, okay, look, we grant that there are 2,901 copies that say this way. However, as best as we can tell in the dating of material, um, and there's a way to tell this, um, those 2,901 copies, none of them existed before 1200 AD. So we have, even though there are discrepancies in the other 2,899, we have these 10 manuscripts from before 400 AD that are in line with something, and they disagree with the 2,901. So now the question is, which one's more likely right? Well, the text was written... The Bible was written, the New Testament, between 50-ish. They think James was first and Revelation was last. So they were written between uh, roughly 50 and we'll say 100 AD. Okay. So, um, and, 
and there's a debate on that too. There's a, everything I say here. There's a debate on it. Just so you know, yeah, it makes sense because I mean, you have to like putting our cards on the table. We even how we judge these texts comes with presuppositions. Yes, I mean the presupposition is that from our, at least our point of view is that the older texts are better. Yes. So because it's a question of which is most likely to be the most accurate. Right. And here's where telephone, the game of telephone comes into play. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, if I tell the first person uh, the ball is red, well, you know, like it goes through 12 people. And by the time it gets to the end of the line, it's like, you <laughs> know, uh, the rhinoceros, you know, was eating steak. Right. By the seashore. And, you know, it's like, uh, it's crazy. By the way, I, <laughs> oh man, I actually, one time we were playing telephone and I'm the guy that changed the whole thing. It mm-hmm. was hilarious because <laughs> I was like, oh no, I'm changing this up. I'm having fun. And they actually could, they actually, the funny part is they pinpointed it back to me because the guy in front of me was like, I told you this. And the person after was like, well, he told me that. And I was like, okay, that's kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> there's oh, always man. that guy it's yeah fun. well it was yeah. fun you had to yeah. be that guy yeah but it's more fun but even then you realize right in telephone that that things change over time and so um the idea is that the closest you are to the original the better the manuscript because mm-hmm. uh, it's less susceptible to weird changes so it's not america majority rules all the time no uh, yeah <laughs> Gosh. so um in that case, you know, if you have six really good older manuscripts that are different from the 2901, then the question comes down to which one's probably more like the original. Mm-hmm. And so what they've developed is families because as they find Bible manuscripts in different parts of the world, they, they start to realize, hey, this text is most in line with this text. And so maybe it's a part of the Alexandria family, or maybe it's a part of the Roman family, or maybe it's a part of this family. And so what they can tell, and again, this, this is kind of a little bit of theory, but they'll, they'll put them into families. Well, and here's, here's a part of that. Um, if, if I can explain how those 2,901 texts came into existence, and if I can show you that 1,400 of them were copied off of this one text, so then is the majority, again, does the majority have the weight? Or is it simply that, hey, in 1,200, our copying abilities got better? And we, you know, these different monasteries in Germany and France pumped out 600 texts in an amazing way but they were all tied back to this text mm-hmm. well that again they made many good copies of the wrong copy yes or a, a yes. copy with more errors i should say yeah so you know that 2901 now you go i mean what we're talking about yes there's 2901 you're really talking about 2300 copies mm-hmm. if you if you realize you know if you can if you can prove the sourcing of some of these and so this is a vital part of this conversation. And if you're still awake at this point, you're doing really well. <laughs> yeah. But all that to say that what, what's important to realize is that when we look at some of those older manuscripts, John 8 is not here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the yeah. adulterous woman is not in the text. 
And from what I understand too, like the the it's where it where it is found is not also it's found in different places in John, and also in Luke in some in in some cases. Yes, so um, it's kind of weird how it kind of floats around. Um, yes, historically, and then and then the older in the older copies, it's not there. Yes, so it is interesting that so it's like someone was trying to figure out a good place to put it in. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's yeah. that's precisely right. Yeah, um, yeah. So you have you have that, and what's interesting is you can actually read Bruce Metzger's textual commentary on the Greek New Testament, where where he comes along and explains. Oh, now by the way, on the dating of material. And that this gets again, this gets really boring. How do you know a a material is from um, you know sixty A.D.? How do you know? How do we know our dating is right? That's a that's a fair question to ask. And this is where the history of paper gets important mm-hmm. because uh, paper has not always been made the same way. Mm. Uh, manuscripts from sixty A.D are on a different kind of paper mm-hmm. made with reeds, bamboo reeds that have been shaved down and woven together used with a different kind of ink. So when you find a Greek manuscript that has that paper, you realize that's older than the paper they were using in 1200. Mm. And so even then they put some on animal skins and then the way that they could bind the books, they go at some point they go from scroll to book binding. Uh, and so all of this, you can tell, right? If you grab a, a book, you're not going to, that's why we talk scrolls, right? Mm-hmm. When you, when you want to think about a text being ancient, it's a scroll. Um, when you want to talk about, you know, our newer concept of books are these bound books. So if you found a codex that has 12 books of the new Testament kind of bound together, you know that the technology to do that wasn't even available until roughly a certain year. So you can kind of like, look at this and go, this is not an 80 AD replica. This right. is something from 450 AD. Mm-hmm. Does this make sense? Yeah. Okay. Can you imagine what our, the ancients would have thought of how we handle paper? We, we get junk mail <laughs> all oh, day, yeah. all oh, day yeah. long. They're like, don't, that's paper. Like, yes. yeah, no, we don't, don't worry guys. We, we, this is this is this is trash. <laughs> yeah, they the funny part is they would wash paper and yeah. rewrite on it. Yeah, yeah, yes. And there are some yeah. Greek there are some Greek and Hebrew manuscripts on washed yeah. paper. Wow, and we just we just fake recycle ours. See, yes, <laughs> yep. Oh, I know. I throw it in the recycle bin, and uh, my trash bin trash company takes it to the same place they take the rest of my trash to. <laughs> okay, so. Here's, here's Metzger's commentary, and this is helpful, and I'm going to translate a little bit. The evidence for the non-Johannine origin, origin of the pericope, pericope is a, a fun word for paragraph, of the adulteress is overwhelming. It is absent from such early and diverse manuscripts as P66 and P75. By the way, those are important. Mm-hmm. Those are two of the, the, the best John early manuscripts we have. They're also uh, not in Aleph, Bait, lam, uh, lambda, nu, tau, omega, psi, psi, delta, theta, psi. Um, and then he lists a bunch of different numbers from different codices. Codices A and C are defective in this part of John, but it's highly probable that neither contain the pericope. For careful measurement discloses that there would not have been space enough on the missing leaves to include the section along with the rest of the text. 
In the East, the passage is absent from the oldest form of the Syriac version and the best manuscripts of Syriac, as well as from the Sahidic and the sub-Akmimic versions and the older Boharic manuscripts, some Armenian manuscripts, and the old Gregorian versions omit it. In the West, the passage is absent from the Gothic version and from several old Latin manuscripts. No Greek church father prior to Euthymius Zygabinus, 12th century, comments on the passage, and Euthymius declares that the accurate copies of the gospel do not contain it. When one adds to this impressive and diversive list of external evidence, the considerations that the style and vocabulary of the prayer could be different noticeably from the rest of the fourth gospel. So there's kind of two things. What he just said is there's internal and external evidence. Mm -hmm. The internal evidence, I'm never a fan of internal evidence, honestly, because it's like, well, this vocabulary is not found. And it's like, well, okay. But, and, and, um, Andreas Kostenberger's commentary on John, he even notes that like, well, there, I mean, it's in a unique situation. Like John's really not talking about this kind of situation any other part of the Greek New Testament in John. So why, why would he like, why would he use the same verbs? And so there's, there's some good points there, but the external evidence, this is what needs to be considered. So one, you look back at these old Greek manuscripts, you don't find it. Okay. So you can start to say, okay, the Greek manuscripts we have do not contain the, the paragraph. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, but there, there was more in that paragraph that I read that becomes very important. We did not start translating the Bible in the Reformation. They started translating the Bible long before that, right? The Latin Vulgate. And what they mention here is in the Syriac versions, they are not translated. So you have early on, they start translating the Bible into other languages. And when they look at those older translations, this passage is not in there. Um, also the Sahidic, the Akamimic and the Baharic manuscripts. Again, so all of these older manuscripts, uh, the Armenian manuscripts, when they start to look through them and they're reading these translations, the John seven fifty three to eight eleven are not in these translations. So what we, those trans now couple things and you go, well, but they're not the Greek manuscripts. The Greeks, the inspired text and the Greek is the inspired text. But what that helps us realize is some of these translations, you can read them and you can realize even, even with the interpret in some of their interpretive work in translating, they are not interpreting this paragraph. Mm -hmm. They're leaving it out. So you have a couple things. Is it a grand conspiracy or is it not in the text? Mm-hmm. And I would argue not in the text, not yeah. grand conspiracy. Makes sense. And by the way, there are people that think that's a grand conspiracy. Mm. Some of the KJV only people are very much grand conspiracy. And the, the problem is the early church is not monolithic enough um, for everybody to, to silently be quiet for a conspiracy of this level to play out. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are touchy about God. So the second, right, like if we went to church on Sunday and say, hey, guys, for the betterment of Christianity, all of us pastors across the world have band together, and we've decided that we're going to strike. We're no longer going to talk about this text from the Bible. 
okay, everybody, uh, this is the, for the good of Christianity. People in our church would rise up and be like, that's nuts. Mm-hmm. Like you can't know that like you have to be faithful to the word of God. They're the same way back then. They weren't, they weren't different. Um, so I, and I struggle with the grand conspiracy theories, especially because these other translations start to point out, Hey, look, it's not in the text. Yeah. Those are, those are much earlier translations, by the way, too. Those are yes. like translations happening within uh, Christian communities in certain parts of the world that were uh, somewhat isolated from other, I mean, they're not isolated, like, or they had no contact with isolated in the sense that they had their own community. So they needed their own translations. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's helpful Mm -hmm. because again, they don't have a Gutenberg press. They're not all going to Amazon buying the same, you know, same press. Some of this is, Oh, Hey, while I was in uh, Ephesus, I recorded these three letters and brought the recordings back for us. Mm Mm-hmm. Hey, while I was there, I found I found the Gospel of John. Um, I found that you know. By the way, this is also one reason why I'm pro Paul wrote Hebrews, because in a lot of um, Paul's codexes, uh, Hebrews is there right after Romans, so it might be like Romans, Hebrews, First and Second Corinthians. Mm-hmm. So uh, the early church bunched Hebrews with the Pauline work. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that that's so what what that to say is then also you don't have the church fathers really mentioning this. Also a very important point because um if we went down to the local Christian bookstore and we pulled every book off the shelf and um or let's say let's say we go to the Library of Congress and we pull every Christian book off the shelf and we go through each book and we take every Bible quote from the book. We theoretically could reconstruct scripture from all of those writings, right? Like let's say the Mark Dever book gives us Matthew six, one through three. Then the John MacArthur book, we find a quote from Matthew six, four through eight. And then the John Piper book, we find 9 through 12. And then the R.C. Sproul, we find 13 through 15. And then, you know, the Joel Osteen book, we surprisingly find verse 16. (laughs) And you know what I mean? So, like... One verse? Yeah, one verse. (laughs) Take it out of context. Um, But but then we can put all these together and kind of go, okay, hey, we we just pieced together what Matthew says. Well, it was the same way with the church writers. The church, the early church fathers would quote scripture. Now they weren't saying, "Hey, it's this is James one three through 6. They would say things like, "Hey, this is like what Saint James said," and then they would quote him. And so, right there, what we have is a interpretation slash maybe even verbatim copy of scripture from these early church writers. And I'm reading St. Gregory the Great on pastoral rule, and he will quote the text without putting a reference in. So he might say something like, well, it's like when Paul, you know, was talking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9.30, become all things to all people, mm-hmm. and then he'll expound upon that. Well, even though at that point they don't have chapter and verse, right, what we still have is, okay, hey, we know he pulled that from the text. Mm-hmm. And so again, the fact that that's absent from church historians from, from church writers, again, at some level you go, maybe they, maybe they chose not to talk about it, which is fair. 
or it's not there. And so that's why it never gets mentioned. Right. Yeah. I mean, you bring up several um, points that, that it almost becomes over, overwhelming. The, the evidence at least seems to be overwhelming that were, were like to, to say that the text existed early on. Very, very difficult at this point. Right. I mean, there's not really one much evidence. And yeah. I think, I mean, the whole reason why we've been talking about this is, um, you know, number one, should we, you know, why you're, you're answering the question, why should we, why were you skipping it? Why you're not preaching it like the normal text? Uh, and then also kind of answers the question, like, you know, why we can also still have confidence in, in our, in our Bible, you know, because, yeah. um, um, it, it helps us think through because people do bring these texts up. Yes. People that try to trash the Bible. So I don't know. So this is a, this is a helpful discussion. Yeah, so even even Kostenberger, you know, um, lists the external evidence against um, this this pericope being in this point. It's utter absence from all pre-5th century A.D. manuscripts, including the best ones. Its appearance in no fewer than five different places in the manuscript tradition. Like you said earlier, it, it is all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um and even after Luke twenty one thirty eight, bearing all of the marks of a bouncing around floating uh, logion, one should also note the large number of variants pertaining to the entire pericope, uh, unstable manuscript tradition, uh, non-Johannine literature features, that's internal evidence, the interruption of the narrative flow, which I talked about earlier, the lack of citation in early patristic writings up to the fourth century, which we just got done talking about, um, the suggested scenario that the pericope passed from its original place in the gospel according to the Hebrews to John's gospel. So there is there is a question of well, where does this origin, where does this story take place? Then, like, so you have two things: like, should it be in the Bible? And then the second question is, well, where does the story originate? So obviously, if you think it's in the text, you're going to be like, well, it's because it's in the Bible. But but if not, you have to ask the question, well, why is it there? Mm-hmm. And this is where things get interesting, um, right? Because we don't 100% know. But what I would probably argue is that it probably was true of Jesus and it probably was a story uh, that was real and that it got passed along and at some point the oral tradition found a, found a place in the manuscripts. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's an important distinction because... Uh, it's not part of the written canon, but it's very possible that it's part of an oral tradition. Yeah. I mean, it could have been floating around. Some preacher preached so, waxed so eloquently, used it as an illustration, and someone said, oh, my goodness, that's one of the most compelling things I've ever heard. If that's historically true, well, we should put this in the Bible. Or, or it should, maybe John wrote, or, you know, some, some, someone in, in their thinking thought it should have been included yeah. at some point, basically. Yeah. yeah. Or a whole group of people. And, yeah. and again, maybe it was passed on, oral tradition. Uh, and maybe at some point along the way, they were like, hey, this is this is it. Yay. You know, and Do we lose any doctrine? Yeah. See, that's the thing. We don't gain any doctrine. We don't lose any doctrine. Right. It is a really cool story. Oh, it is. And and the, the, the thing about it is um, the text is not trying to teach that you cannot point out other people's sinfulness. Mm-hmm. That that is an entirely weird. That interpretation is the kind of interpretation that you give when you don't want people to point out sin, 
And so it's, to me, it's like passive aggressive, defensive, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Hey pastor, I think you're, you're in sin for yelling at your wife. Oh, he who's without sin cast the first stone. And it's <laughs> like this, like passive aggressive. Oh, I can't say anything to you cause I'm a sinner. Oh, I can't say anything back cause I'm a sinner too. Mm-hmm. Uh, well that's weird. Like yeah. that, like the whole new Testament bear one another's mm-hmm. burdens, uh, admonish the unruly. Like, yeah. which you, by the way, people do struggle with that. Like what? people, people have a hard time, like call it like you know addressing someone's obvious sin. Yeah, because they're sinners. Yeah, you know it, yeah. that that happens normally every day with regular Christians. That's probably fair. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, yeah. Um, I mean, so sometimes I forget what other people. So <laughs> this is, um, no, you're right. Yeah, uh, but that's not what the text is arguing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. I would argue that story, you got something going on there with the Pharisees. And I think maybe even MacArthur's interpretation might be correct that that they're involved in it and they're even trying to set her up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I haven't actually not. Um, I mean, I obviously if you've never preached it. <laughs> yeah, and I may never. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm open uh, to using, I mean, because of, the the character of Christ here. I mean, I, I would have to really look at it. Obviously, yeah. Um, it would be a cool, like you know, a star. It could be a cool illustration one day, um, for for something. I don't know. Uh, kind of like how we use illustrations, our stories, yeah. Um, as an illustration of something. Now, I, I would have to ask the question: What is it actually teaching, or what does it mean, or in order to fairly use it? But I don't know. Just a thought. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Sorry, I took you off track there. Yeah, but, that's all right. Um, well, it's it is an it is an interesting story. Uh, it definitely seems like the Pharisees are involved in the sin. Mm-hmm. You know, like they caught her in the we caught her in the very act. Well, really? Like, why were you there? Mm-hmm. Like, was this like? Like some public, like, which you know what I mean. Like, okay, yeah. I think I think, and then too, the fact that it Black, is Black the scribes and the Pharisees bringing a woman caught in adultery and having her set in the center of the court. They said to him, "Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act." Now, in the law, Moses commanded to stone such women. When they, what do you say? Mm-hmm. Well, there's not. I mean, there's a hundred things going on. Second, there is a due process. Um, and so by asking Jesus immediately to stone her is is a denial of actual justice. Right. Which in in, in this in seven, I think there's a little bit of due process there too, right? Chapter seven of John. Yeah, there's there's yeah, due pro I mean, one, it's in all the gospels. If you understand biblical due process, uh, then the then the entire court where that lead that Jesus goes through leading up to the cross you'll see that that court is a sham. Mm -hmm. So, you know what I mean? Like, I haven't really studied the text because, again, I don't think it's in the text. Uh, But just so just my knee-jerk reactions to the text is to kind of agree a little bit with Mac here that that there's some kind of shenanigans going on behind the scenes, and Jesus, in his omniscience, recognizes it. So is it in line with God's character? Yes, is Jesus like, uh, Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. 
Like that's not him. Just if, if it's true that she was in adultery, which again, maybe she wasn't, maybe they're just coming like, Hey, Oh yeah, we found this. Like, and he's like, okay, stoner, you know, like, you know, there, it's some kind of entrapment for him. So whatever interpretation you get, you've got to figure out that entrapment. Mm-hmm. All that to say that at the end of it, um, it is in line with the character of Jesus because he is soft on the brokenhearted. He does walk with justice and righteousness, and he definitely seems to uphold it right here. So, like, does it fit the character of Jesus? Absolutely. Um, if I were going to teach it, my, maybe after the book of John or after we finish John chapter 8. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it'll yeah. come to you. Because <laughs> John 7 and 8 are kind of one section. Yeah. And if you don't think the text is here, then you don't preach the text. Like, yeah. Like, we're already going to pause to do a different study. Mm-hmm. I'm not, yeah, going to come back and then do another second breakaway on the woman. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it, yeah. it's not part of the flow. Yeah. It's not really part of the what John is saying in the pericope. Yes. So why would you include it in the series that you're doing? Yeah. You just make it more confusing, if anything. Agreed. Yeah. But not trying to deny the word of God, mm-hmm. not trying to, to, to belittle it. I'm not trying to take away somebody's favorite story. Um, I think it's 75, 80% plausibly a real story. Mm-hmm. Um, I would challenge anyone who uses that for why you can't address sinfulness in other people's lives. I would say that's not the point of this text. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the point of judge not in Matthew seven, Matthew seven's judge not is actually more in line with what Jesus is accusing him of in eight fifteen. You judge according to the flesh and I do not judge anyone by the same standards. Um, the Matthew seven judge not is, is in line with what Jesus says to him. In other words, when you judge people, you need to not be like using your own criteria. And you and I've been in ministry long enough to know that unfortunately, 85% of the time you have to unwind in, in any kind of marital problem or fight or conflict. You have to unwind the the one or both parties judgment because mm-hmm. usually it's a very prideful lopsided um, lopsided in the sense of like, you know, both people may be doing it, but both people are lopsided in their criteria of what should be happening or, you know, mm-hmm. what my spouse should be doing this, you know, and, uh, um, and that, yeah. So that's, you've got a roof beam in your eye because you don't even see your own hypocrisy. So, yeah. All right. That's did where you, I'm at. Did you exhaust everything you wanted to say on this? I mean, I feel like, yeah. Cause the, the hard part is I can, I can go on. Yeah, so you're not a heretic for skipping this. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, but I mean, I could go on on this subject. Oh, sure, the subject sure. is fascinating, mm-hmm. and there are so many components. Mm-hmm. And so, just just by way of ender to kind of to wrap some of this up, um, what we have is a discussion of how do we know the best manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking about thousands of manuscripts, uh, understanding the dating process is important to this. Um, realizing there are two different approaches, three, but one of a, one of the views has been pushed to the side. So there's two major views on deciding which text is right. 
uh, I already know that some of the King James people will say to me like, oh, but, but if you read the criteria of the majority text, like some of the criteria, like, like some of the criteria is worldly. And, um, all I can say is that both camps, I think have some criteria that's questionable, but I think you can be a discerning student and recognize their questionable criteria and punk kick it out of the discussion while you're considering which text do I favor? Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So I'll let's say dating, the dating process, you can tell a lot by the kind of paper, the kind of pen, the kind of ink they used, uh, by the kind of book that it's been bound in or scroll or loose leaf paper. Um, you can tell a lot, you know, these different manuscript families, translations become important. Writing becomes important, like these these books and the church father writings. And you see, so you can start to, you can use all of this to, to kind of get an accurate sense of the New Testament. And we are, we are, I'm, I say, I, I join with my professors in college in saying I am 99.9% sure that what we have in scripture is what was in the original text. That's fair. Um, and there might be some discrepancies here or there, but for the most part, I'll also say there's no major theological. Like none of us are saying, well, if, if, you know, we got the manuscript right, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Like it doesn't matter which one of those manuscripts you pick up, the Lordship of Jesus Christ on display. Mm -hmm. Even the Jehovah's Witnesses in their false translations, because of some of the stories, if you understand the way the Pharisees were responding to Jesus, even their Bible says to them, Jesus is the Lord. Look at the way the Pharisees respond. That that's what the Pharisees heard. Mm-hmm. So you know, all to say, and the Spirit is amazing. So, yep. Amen. All right, I think I exhausted. Hopefully, that was a good summary. And well, if you got questions or comments, yeah. um, I think anytime we, anytime I say something, if you have questions or comments or unsure about what I said or not not sure what we're what we mean by what we said, um, you know, reach out. Talk to me, ask questions. And if you made it this far and you were not, if you didn't get bored, then uh, you are an anomaly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the club. You did good. Um, yeah. You can also go listen to MacArthur's sermon on Mark 16, nine that he did at night. And it was like 12 points of textual criticism. And you can learn a lot about textual criticism. Like he's very succinct in the way he does it. Very good. Very good. Yep. Uh, there's also a couple books I can recommend. Um, so email me, text me, uh, give me some time in terms of replying. Cause depending on, um, again, I've, I've got 10,000, I've read 10,000 pages on this stuff. Um, cause of my second degree, one of my classes was on this at an advanced level. And some of that you just don't need to read. It's just a waste of time. Some of it's helpful. So, mm-hmm. all right. That's it. All right. Let's get some coffee. Have a great day. All right. Love you guys. Thank mm-hmm. you.